Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with two millennial wise women, Reverend Jennifer Bailey and Lennon Flowers. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Michael Hill, and I have the honor of serving as the 18th president of Chautauqua Institution, and it's my privilege to welcome you to the amphitheater this morning. This is not our normal lecture week. You're going to notice a few different things, and we're going to mix it up a little bit. Uh, First and foremost, uh, Zach here will, throughout the week, be um, playing with microphones to make sure that uh, Krista and her guests uh, are able to be heard for the recording of this. We're also going to do a slightly different time format. Normally, we go through an entire lecture program, and then there's moderated Q&A at the end. Because this is being taped for On Being, and because it will be uh, disseminated later on, we're going to do the moderated Q&A at 1135. And at 1150, I'm going to turn the program back over to Krista so that she can do a wrap-up just to make sure that um, the recording of this works well. Uh, As always, you'll have a brief opportunity to meet this morning's speakers, Jennifer Bailey, Lennon Flowers, and Krista Tippett, on the back porch of the amphitheater immediately following the program. Please note that out of respect for their busy schedules, we do limit the number of people admitted to the porch. Uh, And Chautauquans, this is just a reminder that this is a chance for a brief hello, not to pitch yourself for being her next guest on On Being. At 3.30 p.m. today in the Hall of Christ, all are invited as Chautauqua hosts the sixth weekly community listening session on our work addressing inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. Chief of Staff and Vice President of Strategic Initiatives Shannon Rosner will moderate the discussion. This critical community work is a first step toward fulfilling an imperative rooted in our new strategic plan, 150 Forward, to create the conditions in which everyone feels that they can engage as full and valued participants in the Chautauqua experience. More information on 150 Forward is available at 150fwd.chq.org. At 3.30 today in the Hall of Philosophy, former U.S. Congressman and former Chautauqua Institution Board Chair William Klinger will present a special lecture on gerrymandering. Yes, indeed. It's a week on grace, folks. Come on. (laughs) At 7 p.m. in the Athenaeum Hotel Parlor, the Chautauqua Janus Prize celebration honors Mi Tran, the second winner of this Chautauqua Literary Arts Prize for emerging writers of innovative short prose for for their work, Tree Rings Like Concentric Ghosts. There'll be hors d'oeuvres, music, and an author's presentation and reading. The presentation is free and open to all. If you're joining us this week for the first time in 2019, you've likely noticed some enhancements to our presentation and your experience this morning, including live captioning, new onstage set pieces, new matching podiums for the lecturer and moderator, and technology to improve communications between those on stage and our production staff. 
These improvements are thanks to a generous gift from Chautauquan's Ted and Betsy Merchant, and we're so grateful to them for their remarkable generosity. As I just mentioned, we've been pleased all summer to introduce live captioning to this lecture platform as a service for those who have any kind of hearing impairment or simply those who like to follow along in a different way. To view live captions during today's lecture, visit captions.chq.org with any internet connected mobile device. We also have a limited number of tablets available for borrowing. For, a for assistance, please see an usher or visit gate four to my left, the Ralph C. Sheldon Foundation gate. Finally, out of respect for this morning's speakers and audience members around you, please silence your cell phones and anything that chimes, chirps, or beeps. And I know we always think it's not off us until the phone goes off in the middle of it. So just remember, radio folks, silence them. Uh, and this concludes the morning's announcements. Support for this week's program is provided by the Oliver and Mary Langenberg Lectureship Fund. This fund was established by the Langenbergs in 1996 to strengthen and support the lecture platform at Chautauqua. After Oliver passed in 2012, two months shy of his 100th birthday, he provided the largest bequest received to date by the Chautauqua Foundation. Until his death, Oliver served as the Senior Vice President of Investments at Wells Fargo Advisors. The Langenbergs were major supporters of the St. Louis Symphony, Washington University, and other charities in their hometown of St. Louis. Additional support for today's program is provided by Louise Robley McCarthy Memorial Lectureship, created by gifts from Joseph H. and Florence Robley Foundation as a memorial tribute to Louise. Mrs. McCarthy was a well-known philanthropist, vice president of the World YWCA, the first woman elected as vice president of the National Council of Churches, and a member of the Mayor's Race Relations Committee in St. Louis. Mrs. McCarthy donated the Robley Garden behind the Smith Memorial Library, and her family remains active in the life of the institution. Please join me in thanking the Langenbirds and the Robley McCarthy family. This week, we celebrate extraordinary gifts as we probe the many forms in which grace manifests itself in our lives and the lives of others. As defined by religious terms, grace is the means by which we receive an unearned gift, one we're not worthy of. Beyond religion, what does grace look like in the secular world? When is grace difficult? In talking across differences, in compromise, in the face of adversity, this morning and in the coming days, we'll examine these questions and more and learn how we can actively move with more grace throughout our own lives. Our guide and partner this week is Krista Tippett and her popular public radio program, On Being, which will air these conversations on broadcast later this year. Ms. Tippett is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, a New York Times best-selling author, and the 2019 Mimi and Peter E. Haas Distinguished Visitor at Stanford University. As a journalist and diplomat earlier in her career, Ms. Tippett saw a black hole where intelligent public conversation about the religious, spiritual, and moral aspects of human life might be. She pitched and piloted her idea for several, for several years before launching Speaking of Faith, now on being, as a weekly national public radio show in 2003. 
In 2014, the year after Ms. Tippett took On Being into independent production, President Obama awarded her the National Humanities Medal at the White House. Ms. Tippett. is the author of several books and is currently working on a new one titled Letters to a Young Citizen. She's a graduate of Brown University and holds a Master's of Divinity from Yale University. Joining her in conversation today are the Reverend Jennifer Bailey and Lennon Flowers, co-founders of The People's Supper, which uses shared meals to build trust and connection among people of different identities and perspectives. Since January 2017, the People's Supper has hosted more than 1,400 suppers in 121 communities nationwide, focusing on bringing people together to engage constructively on issues facing their communities. Reverend Bailey is an ordained minister, public theologian, and emerging national leader in the multi-faith movement for justice. She was named one of 15 faith leaders to watch by the Center for American Progress. She's the founder and executive director of the Faith Matter Network, an Ashoka Fellow, On Being Fellow, and Truman Scholar. Reverend Bailey is an ordained itinerant elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. She earned her degrees from Tufts University and Vanderbilt University Divinity School, where she was awarded the Wilbur F. Tillett Prize. Reverend Bailey has spoken on the national and international stage, including the White House, her writing has appeared in national publications such as Sojourners and the Washington Post's Lily Blog. Ms. Flowers, in addition to her work with the People's Supper, is the co-founder and executive director of The Dinner Party, a platform whose mission is to transform life after loss. To date, The Dinner Party has connected with more than 6,000 peers to one another. It currently supports more than 4,000 active members who gather bi-monthly at more than 275 local tables in 95 cities and towns. Ms. Flowers has written for national publications such as Fast Company and Forbes. She previously served as community director of Ashoka's Start Empathy Initiative. An Ashoka Fellow and an Aspen Ideas Scholar, Ms. Flowers is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of UNC Chapel Hill. <laughs> We are so grateful to welcome Krista Tippett back to this week and to host Reverend Bailey and Ms. Flowers for the first time. Please join me in offering a warm Chautauqua welcome to Krista Tippett, Jennifer Bailey, and Lenny Okay, that was a warm welcome. Thank you. Um, it's lovely to be back at Chautauqua and to be here for this week on grace. Um, I did peruse all the many definitions of grace in thinking about this week, um, but I have to say that the word I immediately associate with grace, if I free associate, is amazing. And amazing mm. grace with an exclamation point at the end. That was my preacher grandfather's favorite hymn by far. I sang it more times in my childhood than I can, could possibly count. And here we are in 2019 at Chautauqua in a century my grandfather never saw. In many ways, many ways, an utterly changed world. A world of great open questions and excruciating reckonings a world which calls us to rise to the best of our humanity 
in this century if what we want is to flourish and not merely survive? Um, I'm delighted to be here this week with my colleagues, Lily Percy and Zach Rose, who you may see up here adjusting things, and Padre Gotuma, who is our poet laureate of On Being. Um, the questions we pursue are the elemental human questions. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Uh, those three questions, then that last question in particular of who will we, be, will we, we will be to each other is absolutely inextricable now for us uh, from the basic question of what it means to be human. And this will be the lens through which we will dance and excavate the subject of grace this week. I'm interested in its resonance for our personal lives and our life together. We will interrogate and reflect on what it might have to do, what grace might have to do with, with, with what feel like its opposites and its kindred experiences. Trauma and loss, remembering, repenting, a bravery we never knew we had in us, a readiness to live differently than we ever imagined living before, a readiness to honor others in a way we never imagined honoring them before. And for the next few days, we will, I will have up here with me as conversation partners a theologian, a poet, a scholar of race, law, and literature. And we begin today with two young women I so deeply admire and who I'm so delighted to introduce to this community of Chautauqua. Each of them epitomizes and embodies the word grace for me in all its nuance. Each of them individually walks an intersection of fierce introspection and passionate care for the world we have it in us together to make. They are also pursuing this calling within the context of friendship and their friendship in particular. And we will experience that friendship this morning as the perfect context for taking in their wisdom and insight. Um, so what we're going to delve into is a bit about what they do, but really more what they are learning on behalf of us all, ways of naming and being and gathering that can help transform our life together. So let's jump in because I know that I'd like to really spend three hours in conversation with them. There's a lot to talk about. Um, Jen, I'd love to start with you about hearing um, how you would begin to describe the spiritual or religious background of your childhood. Wow, thank you, Krista. As a reverend, you might, might infer right, that, that it's rooted <laughs> in the church. And for me, when I think about the spiritual background of my childhood growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, and through the 2000s, I, it's very connected to place, and in particular, the place that is my hometown, Quincy, Illinois, a town of about 40,000 people right across the river from Hannibal, Missouri. Yeah. And that is, when I was growing up, 90% white and 10% all others. And being a part of that other growing up um, was not an easy experience. It wasn't easy being a little black girl in Quincy, Illinois. I remember really distinctly being five years old on the playground of Adams Elementary School and being told that I must be dirty because why else would my skin be brown? 
And for me, the one place that I could find a sense of belonging, the one space in my life where I was told that I was beloved just because of who I was, was at Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church on the corner of 9th and Oak Street. Right. And it was there where I was, um, I was taught in the church kitchen by the women of the church, right? That, that space that is largely our domain. Um, it was in that space that Sister Weldon told me when I was seven years old that I would be a preacher girl one day. Uh, and those words of affirmation, that affirmation that I was indeed beloved in the eyesight of God, that my brownness was something to be honored, yeah. that God delighted in me, really happened in those, those kitchen spaces mm. of the church. Mm. You've also written beautifully about learning to raise your voice at your grandmother's table. So you said over pots of greens and black-eyed peas and games of spades, and that there was a truth-telling you learned there. Yes, so I, I say I had two grandmas, one of whom had the key to her church and when her pastor did not, and the other one, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and you can attach all you want to that. Um, and. Then there was my grandma Vera, who was not a churchgoer, um, and who very much, and it, it, it was spades and bid whisk on the south side of Chicago. Oh, so that was her table. That was her table, uh -huh. um, where I learned about a particular type of truth-telling that happens after one to two Budweiser's, right? Um, <laughs> but in that truth-telling um, was sacred space. And it wasn't the same sacred space that I experienced in the church kitchen. It was a sacred space that allowed for a, a type of dissemination of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. The hidden stories that I think I've learned throughout the ages um, are the stories for my grandmother and her generation of racialized trauma, what it meant to flee the Jim Crow South in the late 40s in search of a better life. And this was in Chicago. And this she was in Chicago, yeah. the direct pathway um, from Arkansas up I-55 to the south side. Um, and, you know, lots can be learned when, when Buzz, Budweiser is, is drank and <laughs> cards are being thrown down and words that are not always classified as holy are being <laughs> spoken. And I think those two experiences um, with my grandmothers and mm -hmm. in the church kitchen and at my grandmother's kitchen table um, really informs both my theology and um, what it means to be a black woman in today's United States. Yeah. Um, Lennon, I know less about your story. How would you begin to describe, was there a religion, what, what, you know, what comes to mind for you? How would you describe the religious or spiritual background of your childhood? Yeah, um, I think the spiritual background for me is an easier one to land on. Um, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, and I kind of grew up between worlds. Um, so one, um, you know, was a very middle-class um, world that, uh, from which my mom uh, entered after an escape from one of endemic poverty um, in Eastern North Carolina. And so the other one was much more her world. 
um, and it was the world of my extended family um, in tobacco country. Um, and I grew up surrounded and vacillating between um, spaces and people who lived in very, very different conditions. Um, and I think one of the things that I took away from that um, and that my mom was really uh, adamant that I do um, was to never ever confuse a person's capacity with their circumstances mm. um, and to be able to seek out and look for capacity um, and to recognize, you know, my mom um, was extremely private in her own um, religious views um, to the point that, you know, when she died, I, I still don't know definitively what she believed. Um, but, you know, one of her favorite phrases was, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Mm. Um, you know, and the serenity prayer was, you know, um, taught to me at an extremely early age. Um, and I think the second piece that, um, you know, she was, the second teaching um, from that experience was, you know, she didn't, she didn't romanticize poverty. And I think, you know, the people who tend to are the ones who've never known it. Um, but neither did she romanticize wealth. Um, and for her, um, what was supremely important as a currency that mattered was the use of your voice. You know, she grew up in circumstances um, that can make you feel very, very small. Um, and so she was really um, clear for my brother and me um, that we could be big um, and that what mattered in this life wasn't anything attached to the money that we earned um, or anything like that, but yeah. um, doing something that mattered and mattered to us. Mm -hmm. um, and I should say, you know, I did grow up um, kind of nominally in the Episcopal Church. Um, I started going with my stepdad um, when I was around seven or so. I think I was curious about what he did on Sunday mornings um, and probably wanted to fit in in uh, yeah. suburban Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, no, I think, and I think that that's, that, um, that, that identifying what the spiritual background was and that it was distinct from church is actually... Totally. A perfectly great way to come into that question. Yeah. And, and your mother um, was diagnosed with cancer when you were a senior in high school and died when you were a senior in college. Yeah. And you ended up, um, how, much, when, how many years passed before you created this organization and this you know, the, the dinner party. Yeah, um, so the dinner party began, um, she died in 2007 um, when I was a senior at UNC. Um, and in the course of the four years that she'd been sick, I was really good at kind of keeping a very clear delineation between a world that was caregiving and clinical trials and everything that was going on at home. And, you know, I had a complicated family background before um, she got sick. And then separate from the world of, um, you know, my college and student life, you know, um, and got really, really good at never, ever going there. Um, and that was very much a survival um, strategy. I think, you know, um, in the language of, you know, Parker Palmer, one of um, our great teachers, you know, I was living a divided life, but it was a necessary division. Right. You were compartmentalizing. For sure. Your grief and the loss and, and, and... I think that's what you'd been taught to do, right? That's what the world, that's the message that 
that we get. Yeah, I think we live in a you know, world that doesn't necessarily invite us to share the messiest parts of ourselves. You know? And I learned very early on to stay very busy and to kind of fill every minute of every day um, and to find ways around um, you know, not exposing um, what felt like the complicated parts of my world. You know, that, oh, I'm so sorry for um, you know, making you feel uncomfortable with my life. I promise to never do that again. And so it was um, three and a half years um, after mm -hmm. she died that I had moved out to Los Angeles um, and knew no one um, apart from the boyfriend that I had moved there for, who I would very soon break up with. Um, and, you know, and I think as with anybody who's moving to a new place, you know, I was longing for friends and for community. Um, and finally, for the first time in my life, I actually was able, um, you know, in a place where I wanted to talk about my mom and could do so without immediately falling apart. Right. Um, but the problem was that there wasn't anybody to talk with. Right. And then you met, you met Carla Fernandez, the co-founder of Dinner Party, who, and it sounds like not immediately, but at some point you she shared that her father had died of yeah. a brain tumor. A brain cancer. Brain um, cancer. So I met Carla. She had also moved out to Los Angeles um, recently. We were starting at the same job um, within two weeks of each other. Um, and um, she had also moved out for her musician boyfriend, and she would also break up with that musician boyfriend. <laughs> um, so we had all kinds of things in common to share. Um, but it was actually about four months um, into our friendship and colleagueship, and we were walking back to the office one day, and she mentioned um, that her father had died about six months before. Um, and, you know, for, it wasn't certainly the first time, um, you know, that I had mentioned that my mom had died, um, but it was the first time that I recall wanting to have a conversation. But it's mm -hmm. not a conversation for the kind of like the office water cooler. Yeah. Um, so she, um, a few weeks after that, invited a handful of folks over for dinner. So I showed up, um, you know, as a guest, my first dinner. Um, and long before the dinner party was something that we capitalized or, you know, conceived of as an organization, um, it was a longing for friends. Um, I'm curious about you know, so you, what you've really taken on in the dinner party is you've created these, um, well, you, you, you gather around the table. Um, there are some themes that are already emerging here, threads. One of them is, um, well, boyfriends don't last. <laughs> but also, um, uh, this, the table, yeah. breaking bread together, this, this very, very old thing we do, and that as sacred space, and also... The importance of the raised voices, like finding your voice and, and, and speaking the truth. And, you know, I'm curious, um, as you've thought about this in generational terms, I'm, I'm sure you have, do you, is it your feeling that previous generations knew how to bring the fullness of themselves, like knew how to acknowledge loss and grief? Um, or that this is something that had been compartmentalized for a long time, and the new generation is saying, we, we won't live that way, that we, yeah. we want to be whole? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of kind of conversation about the ways in which, like, the internet and living our lives in social media invites performance, you know, and we're projecting the best possible version and image of our lives and kind of hiding all of the messy parts. And there's truth to that. Um, I think that there's another side to that story as well. Um, but to assume that, you know, we're worse at talking about loss now um, suppose, presupposes that we were good at it ever. Right. Um, and I don't think that that's the case. Right. You know? But it's so stunning, isn't it? Because we're everybody in this room 
is walking around with some kind of loss right now. And many people are, are living with the death of a loved one. Exactly. And I think that, you know, what's interesting, um, you know, our, so much of our kind of culture is built on the kind of mythology of um, acceptance, right? And you're done. And grief with an end date. Right. Um, and I think as a closure. person, you know, closure, right? Yeah. And I, I was like a nerdy kid, you know, and I yeah. wanted to get my grief grade A acceptance and be done. And so then it was really shocking to me when three and a half years later, there were still so many parts of my life that were colored by who my mother was as a living person and by her absence and the way in which that shaped my relationships with the living um, and what I wanted, you know, from my time on earth, which I learned pretty early on was limited. Um, and there wasn't a lot of spaces in which to have that conversation. I didn't identify as grieving even um, at the time that I sat down for that first dinner. Um, and yet this was an, a huge part of my life. There's a um, poem that I love um, by W.S. Merwin, um, your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle everything I touch, everything I touch is um, colored by it, right? And this idea that like you can't separate at a certain point, you know, we are the product of all of the experiences that have come before, um, and you know, you can't separate the bitter from the sweet. Um, but I think what was surprising to me too was that, you know, there are, eventually our stories bleed out of us, you know, and we have to have a space in which to acknowledge and sit with and process, you know, and I think you can, you know, look no further than the headlines to see a lot of the effects of unprocessed grief. Um, but it's also true right. that, like, some of our best relationships come from moments in which we can expose our full selves, right? Right. It's one of the very strange things about us as creatures that grief, moments of grief and loss also can become openings to growth. Yeah, I, you know, and, and now it turns out like there's, you know, a lot of science around all of this and yeah. post-traumatic growth, you know, yeah. and yeah. you say to somebody who is really suffering, you talk about the gift of suffering and you are insufferable, you know, and I think <laughs> sometimes right. Right. Um, like part of what we need to learn to do is to sit with the unfixable, yeah. you know, and just like hold each other that yeah. what we could offer wasn't um, advice or expertise, you know, none of us had letters behind our names, but we were experts in our own story and we could witness and be witnessed by one another. And there's so much resonance. This is such a, an unusual entry point to talking about this moment we inhabit in civic and civilizational terms. There's so much resonance with that experience and those insights and how do we live together now? And how do we move forward into new realities? And um, so the, the, the People's Supper started after the 2016 election. And I know that that was a really cathartic experience for the two of you. And something I appreciate so much about the way you speak about it and also have acted on that catharsis um, is not to turn it into a partisan battle. It is to address it at this human level of what we know about being human and honoring that and ennobling that. Jen, I first met you at a gathering of mostly millennials, a couple of months out, I think maybe November 2016, and I think you were supposed to give a talk or maybe like a TED-like TED talk, and you instead delivered a sermon. <laughs> Which was amazing. <laughs> and um, 
you know, I then, I then I think I, I think I invited you to write this piece for our, for 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 the on being space yes. about what you'd said and. You know, you, I'm just going to read, a, I'm going to read a little bit of this. Um, I am a black woman ordained in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. I am the breathing legacy of, Ameri- of one of America's great original sins. The child of people stolen from the West African coast to labor in the fields of Florida, Georgia, and Arkansas. This is you after the election. I folded into myself, my arms wrapped tightly around my knees, and found their rest on my heaving chest. Yet as I opened my mouth to cry out to God, as I often do in moments of hopelessness, no sound emerged. Rocking back and forth on the cool linoleum floor, I finally uttered the only words that I could find. I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe. You reminded me in that moment that the meaning of the word um, apocalypse in, the, bibl- in the, 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 the biblical Greek is not a catastrophe to end all catastrophes. The meaning of that word is an uncovering. Mm. And you also wrote this, regardless of where you fall on the ideological spectrum or how you cast your vote, one thing is exceedingly clear, that that presidential cycle uncovered and left exposed a rupture at the very heart of our democracy you do this, you take this on in human terms. And so the, t- the two of you, I guess, started talking just as you started the dinner party with um, uh, another friendship, which I think is also a theme in terms of how you all and your generation is approaching social change. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm... I'm kind of reading you at you, but I want you to speak as well. What, what's resonating now, hearing those words back is like, I said that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's also um, part of the context for that moment for me in November of 2016 is that I'd lost my mom on Mother's Day Eve 2016 after a 14-year battle with cancer. And what I felt when I was rocking back and forth on that floor and saying, I don't feel safe, I don't feel safe, was her presence come over me and say, we've never been safe. And it was a reminder for me that as someone who grew up for, in her case, she was part of the first class to integrate her high school in Cairo, Illinois in 1968, that safety is an illusion that's only afforded to a few people. And so the choice, which my friend Mickey um, reminds me of, is some of us have to be brave. And when I reflect back on that moment, when I reflect back the next week, I was driving from Nashville, Tennessee, where I lived, to Little Rock, Arkansas. And I drove through my grandmother's hometown of Hughes, Arkansas, um, the one that that was playing bid with. Um, I remembered stories. I remember the story of her father having to escape from the KKK into Mississippi because he was trying to register black people to vote. Mm-hmm. And I remembered the stories of what it was like for 
my other grandmother to experience a, a lynching in her hometown when she was 11 years old. And so I think it was out of a space of recognition and the uncovering moment for me was just exposing what generations of my family had always known had been at the heart of our democracy, yeah. which was this great sin of white supremacy um, and, and, and the and becomes really important to me, that we were the product of those who survived. And as I reflect on this moment in American history, and when I reflect on the future children I hope to have, my hope is that but it's by creating small spaces like the ones that we've been able to do through the People's Supper that perhaps we can begin to imagine and realize what the, the promise of America could be. I was with uh, Ruby Sales, uh, a mentor of ours at Faith Matters Network. Great this civil week. rights civil elder. Civil rights elder who, yeah. you know, if you want to humble yourself, just spend some time with elders. <laughs> Um, and she reminded me of a phrase that old black folks used to say to her when she was going through the civil rights movement, which is that you're in process. The implication being that none of us has quite arrived yet. And I think in America, we are in process. Yeah. And we are at a really deep and important moment of uncovering that is ugly. And there is a choice before us. And the question is whether or not we will continue to be in process towards the, the promise of what America could be mm -hmm. or default into the worst of our instincts. Yeah. And I think a wisdom that the two of you have from, the, from your families and, and from you know, the work focusing on grieving, focusing on pain and loss I mean, and this corresponds with what we're learning in brain science, is that, that, that when we begin act, we humans begin, are reduced to pain, to our pain and our loss and our fear. Um, we, we cannot be our best selves. Um, and I, and I feel like that's not the only thing that needs to be attended to, but it is something. That, and that's kind of what you're, you're creating, these literally nourishing spaces <laughs> around the table, which doesn't now surprise any of us, <laughs> um, for people to bring their humanity, whoever they voted for, whatever their identity is on the spectrum of all of our divisions. Tell, tell us what that's been like, like what you've experienced. Hard. Hard, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I say that, like, not flippantly, but I no. think Is it has been, um, you know, I will self-identify as someone who identifies as part of the political left who is embedded and nourished by communities working and striving towards social justice. And one of the first instincts that I think a lot of my peers had post-election was to gear up for the fight. Right. And I think 
for many, many reasons, that was the right decision for some of them. And what I remembered in this time where um, so many of us were sort of throwing accusations at one another was a really distinct memory. I was 14 years old. My mom had just gone into the hospital for the first time after her cancer diagnosis. And I was sitting um, at a kitchen table. It was my birthday. And I heard a knock on the door, and it was Erin Charrington, who is the mother of one of my best childhood friends. And she brought me a birthday cake. Now, Ms. Charrington is a conservative Catholic woman. Um, I don't know how she voted last election, but I can guarantee you that in the elections before that, we probably did not vote the same way. Mm -hmm. And for me, that memory of this connection with somebody who was part of a mothering community for me growing up, who had a very different political ideology than I did, was the thing that called me back. Called me back from the, the ease of cynicism, of accusation, um, and reminded me of the deep humanity that still existed in what I might call my political foe, right? Yeah. Um, and so translating that story and sharing that with some folks for whom, and this is something Lennon and I've talked about quite a bit as a lesson from the People's Supper, is sometimes it's unethical to ask certain people to bridge. Some people aren't ready to bridge right. yet. Right. Um, particularly those who ha inhabit particular marginalized identities that are yeah. under attack Yeah, in this people season. who are literally in danger should not be asked to be bridge people. Exactly. Yeah. But some of us, as you but say, those can us, be brave. Yeah. And, yeah, but for those of us who are called to that type of work, yeah. which is not everybody, yeah. but for those of us who are, I feel a particularly deep responsibility to yeah. step into that space um, and be what I think any good preacher is, which is a translator, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to, to use the words of, of faith in some cases and others to begin knitting together um, a little bit more of that fabric that I think is so important um, to what the American project is. Mm -hmm. um, this is the moment for me to invite you to write questions, um, the cards, or if you have already written questions, I think the cards will be collected. I believe I'm doing this correctly. And um, we'll keep speaking up here for about 10 minutes, and then we'll open this up. Um, I want to talk about, in the, just in these few minutes, um, some of the vocabulary and the practices that have emerged through what you've done. Some of it emerged in your separate, you know, in the dinner party or in Faith Matters and have found their way into people's supper. But I feel like they're so instructive and nourishing, actually, to hear about. So, um, Lennon, um, you have this notion in the dinner party that we talk a lot about self-care and that there's also a need for collective care, um, that we might live better, bolder, and more connected lives. So talk about what that distinction is for you. Yeah, um, I mean, I think self-care, I think one of the things that we forget about self-care um, is that it doesn't work in isolation, right? 
and we live in a time of endemic loneliness, right? Um, and that part of what tethers us, you know, to life on earth and makes it great um, are the people we care about and the people who care for us, right? You know, we live at a time in which, um, you know, suicide rates are, have gone up 30% in the last two decades. Um, and when you unpack some of that data, more than 50% of people who die by suicide um, had no known mental health problems, right? And what that actually tells us, and it's true for anybody who um, lives with suffering in any form, which is everybody, um, that what we carry, we carry alone, right? So I think the ability um, to find in each other, right, mm -hmm. um, moments of healing, right? When you look at kind of, um, there's a study recently that um, millennials and Gen Z are um, one of the loneliest demographic groups, you know, lonely, have higher loneliness scores than um, people ages 72 and older. But when you actually look at what is driving that, social media wasn't what was predictive. Um, people who spent a lot of time online um, had, you know, the same loneliness rates as people who spent less of it. What was actually predictive was the presence of in real life conversation and connection, the relationships in your life. Um, and I think the fact that we can be, that we have opportunities to be in relationship with one another, um, you know, who, people who wouldn't ever otherwise encounter each other, right? Or wouldn't um, engage a conversation, that our stories can be a really powerful way in, in a way that argument isn't. Um, but relationships, I think like, let's make no mistake, relationships aren't a thing that can be compelled either. Um, and they so can what be are, what? They cannot be compelled. Right. Right. And so what are the conditions that invite that? And part of that answer is time. Is time. That's right. I mean, you, I think what makes all of this possible and bearable for the two of you is very countercultural to the way American society has functioned for a long time, where time is money and you do things quickly and you get them resolved and you move on and you have an action plan or you take a vote and you move on. And you all have, a, and I think I see this in your generation, and, and I, you know, it, it's so beautiful and, and so interesting, is, is a long, reality-based sense of how long social change takes. I mean, I feel like, you know, Jen, I've heard you, I feel like you are really picking up this language of Martin Luther King Jr. of the long arc of the moral universe and taking it seriously for the first time. Now, one thing, um, our mantra, a mantra we have at the People's Supper is always that, you know, um, relationships move at the speed of trust, but social change moves at the speed of relationships. And, whew, what a relief. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that, Yeah, and you know, did Stephen Covey, he started so this that, is interesting, because yeah. Stephen Covey had this language of the speed of trust. Right. But it was there. It was very much about productivity and getting things done, right? And you're picking that up and just shifting it. Say it again. It's, so it's relationships move at the speed of trust. Social change moves at the speed of relationships. Right. There's been no movement for justice or equity in this country that didn't start with relationship. It doesn't happen singularly, and. And I say it's a relief because I had the experience, and I think Lennon's also had this experience of being like the hot young thing, especially in the church. Like, if you are young and in ministry, one, you're young until you're 40 in the church. Um, it's true. <laughs> you it's true. are, you're actually young until you're 50. You just haven't learned that yet. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, but, and so, you know, when I entered ministry, I started seminary when I was 24, um, was ordained when I was 26. And there was an impetus for wanting to shape me into and be that, um, that hot young thing that was going to be on a particular trajectory and molded yeah. in the image of my elders. And one thing I discovered, and I learned this physically because I grew up really fast and long. I, I've been the same height since I was about 13. Mm -hmm. And my knee would pop out of socket all the time. I was kind of gangly. It wasn't very coordinated. Is that it became this perfect metaphor for my career. <laughs> um, and then I felt like I was growing really fast and long, but not deep and wide. Mm. And so as I think about this work of social change that we're undertaking, um, the transformative practice of trying to build the America that we want to see, it's a generational project. Yeah. And thank God that I believe in a faith tradition that, you know, my time currency is eternities, not, <laughs> not election cycles. Yeah. Right. And, right. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of I, I experience, I would say, especially among uh, those young people who are over 40, um, <laughs> who are in the, in the, you know, back in the way we've been living for a long time, um, who set themselves up for a deeper cynicism and a deeper sense of hopelessness because somehow there's this idea that, you know, just because long ago we decreed that elections would happen on the first Tuesday in November, that that's the cutoff point. And, but anyway, that's, and also, that's also just talking about political change. And the reason I think, you know, what you've been doing, and you too, is, abs is, is actually more relevant than every bit of political punditry, is that there's something about this advanced age we're in that politics has just now, and, and the economy, have become this thin veneer over the human drama, mm. over these questions of what it means to be human and how we want to live, over the drama of pain and fear and dreams and hope. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we have forgotten that we can be each other's medicine, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think, you know, I, the People's Supper, I think, I began that work with um, profound levels of naivety in a thousand different ways. Um, but one of them was the presumption, you know, our work began as a hundred day project, which we thought was like eternal time in Twitter time. <laughs> right. So yeah. yes, we are capable of long games and also sometimes like, you know, can speak the length of a tweet. Um, and, you know, and, and our, in, our intention there was to gather, you know, a hundred dinners over a hundred days. Um, and we did that, and we did a lot more than that, and there was a, a continuing appetite to keep gathering. But one of the things that we had found in that um, was actually a lot of really problematic motivations, right? Mm. And I, you know, I think part in of yourselves my, or just all over the place? Oh, both and. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> and um, I think, you know, for me, you know, like my shorthand. And I think the reason that I, you know, responded to Jen's phone call, um, you know, and leapt into action was both a desperate need, which had always been my, you know, driving um, response in moments of trauma and loss, which is to do something and to move. Um, but it was also, you know, to fix my dad. Um, and I think what I had failed to appreciate in that um, was that there's a lot of work 
um, I had to interrogate my own whiteness, right? It is easy, I think we, attend, we uh, draw a lot of attention to this political moment and point fingers um, you know, at the uh, white supremacist who uh, just shot up at Walmart in El Paso, right? Um, and, the, and the collective grief experience that attends that. Um, but I think one of the things that we noticed was, you know, early on, we heard from a lot of, um, you know, white progressives, a an old colleague of ours coined a term for white women who like to hike, <laughs> WWWLTH, and hi, I'm a white woman who enjoys hiking. Um, but it was, what people were looking for was a moment to match the um, optics of their lives with the values they profess to hold and their voting patterns every four years. So they wanted to sit down with a token person of color, a token immigrant, preferably undocumented. They wanted to have a moment um, to you know, elevate or bend their eyebrows in kind of a pity face and to show that they were every bit as compassionate as they thought they were. They wanted to sit down with a Trump supporter and prove that they were morally and intellectually superior. They wanted to take a selfie at the end of the night and they wanted to be done. And that isn't the way that social change works. That is not the conditions of relationships. Yeah, I think the great question of the 21st century is the question of how, how we be together, right? And I use the, that language intentionally in the, the African-American vernacular English, right? <laughs> like, how we be. And for me, it's about not just how we be in terms of our personhood, but how we, how we do this American project together, because we've never actually been successful at it yet. Right. And so the aspiration to live in a multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy is an aspiration. And God, what a project to pursue. Yeah. But if we don't get it right in these small ways, in building those relationships of trust over time, recognizing the historical and real modern day reasons why there are these deep ruptures, you know, I think about... Um, we talk about white supremacy in this country or white nationalism, it's not hypothetical for me. About two months after the Charlottesville incident, an hour south of my house, there was a rally of many of the worst groups that were there. And for me, when I hear people chant stuff like blood and soil and Jews will not replace us, I think about my future children as someone who is an African-American living in the South, married to a practicing Jew. We our future kids are the embodiment of everything these people profess to hate. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's real. There are real lived consequences for people worshiping what I think of as the God of white supremacy. For me, white supremacy is not an ideology, but a theology. And what is required of mm -hmm. it is both the blood sacrifice of black and brown bodies and for white folks to give up a true part of themselves mm. in the process, mm. to forget their histories. Mm. So when I think about, Lenny, you're mentioning grieving practices earlier, I actually do think we have some ancestral ways of knowing how to grieve. It's why black funerals take about five to eight hours, right? Right, um, right. It's why, you know, when I, I think about my friends who live in Ireland and other places, right? There are these rituals and practices that we know but we've forgotten, and right. in fact, for many people, they've been asked to give up to assimilate into a vision of whiteness 
that erases the particularity of their story. Yeah. And what an act of violence that is as well. I think, you know, I think also just, you know, the dinner party, the supper, the shared supper, the hospitality to strangers, whether you voted the same way or not. I mean, that's never what hospitality was about. It's about inviting people to bring their best selves into the room. Um, you, here's some language about, um, I think this is language from the, from the uh, people's suppers. Um, while people share their stories and bear their scars, the group has a responsibility to elevate and hear their stories. Um, you talk about this as being brave space. Brave space works to create a space that is supporting, healing, and nurturing to all involved. That image that we get from that language is so contradicts what happens in too many of our most highly publicized political and public spaces now. But it is this ancient technology of gathering around the table and breaking bread together. So let's open this up um, for, for what's on your mind. I'm not, yeah. So just a, a reminder a little bit on a change of format because we're a little bit earlier. If you have to head off to a different program, we'd ask that you do that now versus at noon when we normally do that because we're going to cut back to Krista and we don't want to hear a ton of background noise as she's trying to record. Uh, we of course would be delighted if you stay for Q&A. Uh, we're going to do the Unshatakwa thing. If as we pivot back, you haven't left yet, stay put. Um, Few questions coming in from Twitter. A lot of folks fascinated by this enterprise that you've uh, taken part in uh, around the People's Supper. Uh, how, so one of our questions from Twitter says, how do you invite people of different viewpoints to a shared table so that they feel comfortable joining and openly sharing? What's the process of the invitation? It's a great question. Um, so one of the things that we learned um, is that if you want to change who's showing up at the table, you have to change who's doing the inviting. Um, and people um, will show up for people that they trust. Um, and so you know, if you want a room of 100 people of diverse identities and perspectives, then you identify 10 people um, who live between worlds, right? Um, and have different networks and communities to which they can extend an invitation of, this is why it's important for me. You know, we look for people who can lead um, from their own place of vulnerability, right? Um, and that it's not, I'm here to fix you. It's, I feel this source of rupture. This is what it is meant for me. This is why I'm involved. And it would mean a lot for me um, for you to be here. Mm. So a question again from Twitter, uh, how, do you, how do those who want to be bridges talk to those who insist that it's only about fighting? So I think first and foremost, um, we do not, like the, two, the elevating marginalized voices in this society is not mutually exclusive 
from harm reduction and prevention and finding avenues through which we can gather with people who do not share the same viewpoints and beliefs. So it isn't an other, either or, that's a trap, right? And I think as Jen named, being very, very clear um, that you are, you know, just in the same way that, um, you know, in Tarana Burke's words, you don't owe anyone your story, right? You are under no obligation to show up at this table. And in fact, the only people who really need to be and concede to that conversation are ones who are mutually curious about one another and can bring a sense of mutual welcome. Right. Um, but we need people um, who are fighting suck right now. <laughs> um, and so I think it's a both and. Yeah. How do you think about that, Jen? That yeah, this question of bringing people to the table when all you, yeah, folks want to fight right now. Um, I go back to the language of invitation, right? Which is different than demand. And so I think one of the things that we've been really intentional about in the methodology of the People's Supper in particular is that we don't lead with questions around your political identity or what you think yeah. about um, headline X, Y, or Z, what we begin with is the question of telling your story. You know, so our bridging suppers that we've used to bridge across lines of political difference start with the question, describe a moment recent or long since past when you felt isolated, alone, or unwelcomed. And what that does is begin to let people settle in mm -hmm. to a shared experience, because we've all had an experience of that. Yeah. Um, rather than going up, because once you start talking politics, people's guards immediately right. shift and they go into fight mode and right. not a mode, mode of invitation. Yeah. Yeah, I think your, your point, the point about, I mean, and that there are many callings for this moment in time and they're not mutually exclusive, like we need all of them. We need, there are battles to be fought and there are dangers, there, there, there are bodies, there are people who need to be throwing their bodies in front of other bodies in dangers, and there's a need for calmers of fear. There's a need for spaces, brave spaces, where we can start to talk about what's really going on as opposed to the anger that's coming out in these political ways. And that's, that's what you're doing, you're fostering that. Question from the audience, how does one have the first dinner party? Where does the guest list come from? Um, so for the dinner party, and again, this is the work that's anchored in connecting grieving 20 and 30-somethings, um, the problem for a lot of folks um, you know, who are among the first in their peer community to experience a major loss um, is that they don't actually, it's not just you know, giving yourself permission to talk about something that you otherwise don't, it's that you don't know anybody else or enough people to fill a table who have that shared experience. Um, so our work is around actually connecting strangers to one another and um, you know, using kind of what we call um, you know, our human algorithm, right, for identifying um, not only common experiences of loss and ensuring that no one, um, you know, to the best of our ability, um, is alone in their story, um, so that you know you are not the only person who lost a partner at a table of otherwise people who lost a parent, um, but also that there's a lot of like pretty banal reasons that get in the way of our gathering, right? Particularly when it comes to something that requires a lot of courage to show up the first time. One of those is traffic and neighborhood, right? Some of the, how do we identify people, um, you know, who are experiencing other shared milestones in their lives? So early 20-somethings to other early 20-somethings, late 30s somethings to other late 30s somethings. Um, and obviously, you know, as we 
and that is part of the reason that we, you know, focus our um, work on 20 and 30 somethings, which is a, you know, not a line in the sand, obviously. Um, but it's because people don't know with whom to gather. Now, loss is not limited, you might not be surprised to find, to the young. Um, and grief is the human condition and something that only compounds over time. And so part of what we hope to see over time is people engaging a different conversation with people that they do know. Um, they've just mm -hmm. never had right. the courage to go there. Right. You both uh, have shared stories about tables and the importance of tables. A slightly different question from a member of our audience. Uh, what's the importance of food? How does food play in and how do you think about that meal? Uh, we talked a lot about the table. Talk about the meal. Everybody has to eat. <laughs> and, you know, I think one of the great beauties of the early model of the People's Supper, and I think about um, our co-founder Emily used to bake bread for her, her table um, of folks that she would host at her apartment in Brooklyn, is that there's an invitation also to bring, bring your own your own dish, right? To bring something that represents who you are. Yeah, it's a potluck, right? It's I think that's potluck, important. Yeah. It's, you, it's not that when you host a supper, you have to cook for 12 no, people. No, maybe like an anchor dish and a dessert, but we invite other people to bring, bring their own food, and that becomes a gateway to story as well, right? So I only know how to make one thing from scratch, and that's my grandmother's sweet potato pie. So... I will bring that to the table often because I can't make anything else from scratch. <laughs> um, but it, it, it opens up a story both about my family legacy, why sweet potato pie versus pumpkin pie, right? All of those um, memories that are attached to that particular dish. I think that um, meals also create kind of a rhythm in a conversation. You know, and I think some of the stupidest things that we say are because we're trying to fill silence, right? Um, or we're trying to cover. And so instead, the ability, um, you know, when you're actually giving thought to what is really true for you, the ability to pick up a fork um, or a glass, you know, to take pauses, right, that don't feel, um, you know, awkward. And I think, you know, one of the things that we try to um, instruct everyone in is the difference between, um, you know, embracing silence as a gift um, versus being silenced. Um, and there are a lot of ways in which we can silence each other, but silence itself is not at all the enemy in conversation. I think that there's a familiarity to a meal, um, you know, because we all gotta eat, um, and our food does tell the stories of where we come from. Um, but it also, you know, we encourage hosts, particularly for like larger events in um, congregational spaces or civic spaces, um, you know, to use the moment of dessert as actually a cue that like things are gonna start to wind down now. And because, and that way you don't actually have to have a, you know, a phone or a watch, you know, and like looking down, right? Um, but a host can know that in about 15 minutes, we're gonna start to like bring the conversation in. Um, and I think that allows us to be really present with one another. These are social technologies. <laughs> At this point, we're going to turn it back to Krista okay. to wrap up the show, and I'll join you one last second at the end just to thank our guests, but back to you. Okay. I want to talk about um, the notion of accompaniment, which we've been, we've been talking about, but it's an important word for you, I think, somewhere... You said that this is the most sacred element of your work. Um, you know, Jen, um, 
in that piece you wrote for us after the election, you quoted Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saying, where do we go from here, chaos or community? That was his question. And you said, I choose community. The community I long for will not be found in shallow platitudes promoting reconciliation. It will require the courage of everyday heroes to dig deep and find within themselves the wherewithal to lean into one another and repair the breach of relationships this election has exposed. So we've been talking about bringing people together, but eating together, but I want you to talk, just talk about all the nuance for, for the two of you, that this word, that, that accompanying each other holds um, for your generation also and for our, for this age we inhabit together. What all is involved in that notion? Yeah, there's a quote I love that says, we are each other's business. Um, and for me, I'm very aware of the urgency of now and the, the issues that we're facing. July was the hottest month ever recorded in human history, right? Like there is a climate crisis that is afoot. There is a crisis at, um, on our borders and the creation of borders between us. And I know that the only way that I know to get through that is to be walking alongside one another in that journey through the, the valleys and the mountaintops. And that means not giving up on each other, not casting one another aside, but inviting us um, into deeperness. <laughs> if that's a word, I don't know if that's a word. Um, <laughs> but I, I think about these moments of reckoning, right, that are upon us. and. For me, our narratives of reckoning are incomplete without pathways for redemption um, that hold us to account for some of the, the awfulness mm -hmm. and the messiness, but also allows ways for us to reintegrate people into community. Because it's when we start to cast each other aside, when we don't do the work of walking alongside and being with one another through through the shit, if I can say that, I'm sorry, that's reverend, that's not very reverently language, but, but that's where you like start to foster community. And I think one of the great gifts of still being embedded in a church community yeah. is that I'm still an intergenerational space with folks. Yeah. Um, before I left Nashville yesterday, I was in my church kitchen, so many connections to church kitchens, yeah. um, with Miss Hazel. And she was sharing with me as we were reflecting on um, the events in El Paso and in Dayton, and I told her, my heart is broken, and I'm happy my heart is broken because I was afraid that I'd become too complacent. And she began to share with me the experience of growing up in the 1940s and 50s and 60s in Nashville, Tennessee, and her resilience, right? That word becomes important to me. Yeah. And that, that resilience of being able to get, get through when when the Klan burned a cross on her front yard because her brothers integrated the local elementary school, that it was with each other that they were able to get through. And so for me, that's why accompaniment and this word is so important is because it's only in community that my people have gotten through and I think it's the only way that we're gonna get through. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, we've really outsourced the role of being human to experts and professionals. 
Um, and really, what does it look like to reclaim our humanity and to recognize that, you know, I think sometimes it's, it isn't, um, you know, I think about growing up in like the, you know, post-racial 90s of America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of um, what wasn't talked about um, as it related to race and racism and whiteness. Um, and some of that wasn't always um, the product of overt racism, right, and denial. Um, it was, or, you know, the equivalent of Holocaust denial. Um, it was discomfort, right? Um, and I think recognizing that safe spaces, and this is back to the language of brave space that has yeah. um, been so, you know, formative, um, is that we don't need to confuse safe spaces with comfortable spaces. And we don't have to understand everything about each other in order to be present with one another. I think that we like have mistaken empathy, you know, as walking um, in someone else's shoes. Let us be clear, you can't, um, because that person lived a lifetime in their shoes. Um, but what we can do is witness and accompany. I think in, you know, you're, you're actually pushing against some of the instincts of your generation also in in working with the language of safe space in that way. And I can imagine that this is kind of controversial. And I think it's really important because you're, you're I mean, I, I also like clearly, I mean, this is, you know, me walking into this dangerous territory, but clearly, you know, that language of safety and lack of safety has its meaning. But I agree with you that sometimes it's being confused with being uncomfortable and then it becomes something that, in a, in a weird way, is dehumanizing for everybody. Um. In the words of our colleague Mickey, she, there's a part in the poem that she wrote, An Invitation to Brave Space, which has been the one document that has anchored every single People's Supper, which is, we have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. And we will not be perfect. And I think one of the things that is so true about the work that we've been up to, but I think this moment, is that we expect people to come out fully formed. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, if we're going to do the work of what it means to grow into being fully human, to grow into the promise of America, to grow into to be in process, yeah. then we have to be teachable. We have to be moldable. We have to be willing to engage one another and be wrong sometimes. Mm-hmm. And there has been such a, a culture, um, and I think it comes from a good instinct to want to protect, yeah. um, to want to, and I know in my community, it's, it's been silence around particular racialized traumas that people have experienced in previous generations and what, what my aunties and them didn't say, right? And they did that out of a desire to protect me yeah. from the harsh realities of what it meant for them to grow up when they grew up and where they grew up in the South. And, and it still is live, right? And so I think there is a, there's a generational conversation to be had cross generations about the fine line between what it means to, to protect and what it means to tell the truth and hold one another in truth well, mm-hmm. to accompany 
one another mm-hmm. in the telling of truth well. Um, and all in, with, in reality, in all its complexity, the world as it is and not as we wish it to be. Exactly, exactly. Um, I do, we're, we're just going to run just a couple minutes over. Um, I got permission for that. Um, just a couple, I promise. But I do want to throw in here that part of accompaniment is insisting on joy and refreshment and resilience. And that one thing accompaniment is about is understanding that on any given day, it may be too much for you or me to ask, to carry, even to be hopeful. And so on those days, you have somebody else who can carry that for you. I mean, and, and I feel like joy is also strangely countercultural right now. Like everybody's I don't very... want a revolution if I can't dance, y'all, right? Like, there's a reason why uh, I, I hold scripture in one hand and Beyonce lyrics in the other, right? Like, that there is joy to be found in, um, in the silly moments, in the quiet moments, in the moments that, um, yeah, I agree with you that joy seems countercultural, but like, what is more revolutionary than declaring that there are things that are worthy of our laughter, that there are things that are worthy of celebrating at a time where everything seems so dark and dim? Like, I, I, I live my life in color, not in black and white. <laughs> and, and so. Um, And that's another thing that we've always known. There's a reason why the elders of the movement, the civil rights movement, were singing songs, right? Yeah. There are reasons why they're cooking together um, and just being together. And so much of that relationship, that trust is built over um, late night bottles of wine on front porches. <laughs> and, right, um, right. And that's all, this is also not an either or, it's both and. It's a both and, uh-huh. like we get to live full lives. And when we stop living full lives, we give ourselves over to hopelessness. And I belong to a faith tradition that is all about revolutionary hope and always uh, orients itself towards a notion of resurrection, right? Not resurrection that is born of um, platitudes, but of like a deep reckoning with sorrow and death and that we imagine something different, mm-hmm. that we can begin to live into something different. That's the, the fancy term I learned in seminary, the eschatological hope, right? Like that, right. Is, that is the vision of what might be. And man, if that Jesus guy for me didn't live that example, he was drinking too and sharing tables all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is what humans have been doing with each other, right? The sharing joy and sorrow with the people that we love, you know, and recognizing, um, you know, the first time somebody shows up to a a dinner party, um, you know, it's the ability, I think we like obscure our pain and our suffering with platitudes and empty words and trying to, um, you know, find the rainbow at the end of, you know, unfixable realities. But the thing that keeps people coming back over time Um, is you have to have moments of joy and laughter um, and vitality, right? Right. That is like the bread upon which our friendships and our lives are built. And it is space in which to be and hold all of it. These are not a false dichotomy, you know? 
I want to close, I want to ask you all to read the full, this invitation to Brave Space, this poem that is so central. You just read the first few lines. And um, we had a printer crisis at the place I'm staying just before I came over, so I was unable to print this out. But luckily, I have this beautiful invention, the iPhone. So um, yeah, this is a live taping of On Being, so you're seeing what it really looks like. Um, not just, this will be edited out, but you're here for the real thing. <laughs> um, so why don't you just, you know, why don't I give it to you Lennon, and you just read the first half and then pass it to your friend. An Invitation to Brave Space by Mickey Scott Bay Jones. Together, we will create brave space because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars, and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be, but it will be our brave space together, and we will work on it side by side. Thank you, Reverend Jen Bailey Thank and Lennon you. Flowers. Thank you, Jennifer Bailey, Lennon Flowers, and Krista Tucker. Looking like this, isn't it? <laughs>